the very roots of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is This is the typical violence of information. It's violent because what happens there is a murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. Welcome to Machine to Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry and Taylor Atkins. As always, we are sponsored by the People's Institute for Revolutionary Semiotics. Before we get started with our discussion today, just want to uh, throw out that we do have a Patreon at patreon.com forward slash M-U-H-H. Think about throwing us a buck a month to help support the show. But in light of our forays into both anti-Oedipus and symbolic exchange and death, we're taking a look today at Marcel Mauss's The Gift, which is of particular importance particularly for Baudrillard, he draws a lot from this in Symbolic Exchange and Death. So we thought it'd be a good idea to to take a look at this text. And uh, I've got some really interesting topics to go over. But Taylor, what, let me know what your broad thoughts are in the text or anything like that you want to start off with. I would say, I would say, you know, Mouse is, is little read directly, but his influence in terms of the 20th century and the kind of trajectory you can see in some of the major currents. Yeah. You know, it's hard not to see him influencing even the ripples that his like this study, at least particular, right. As a, as a kind of a, a catch all for some of the more, you know, direct and specialized uh, work he did. This, this is this general exposition. You can obviously see it resounding throughout the 20th century. I mean, I, you know, works like Bataille's Accursed Chair. Right. Obviously, Levi Strauss, um, who helped to propel him even further uh, with, forgive, he, he, I'm not sure if, I think he wrote like this long introduction for one of uh, Mouse's works in French. It could be this, this work particular. I'm trying to remember, but it's a very long, itself a celebrated text. So Levi Strauss too kind of also bootstrapped himself a little bit with with Mouse, but um, but yeah, I mean I, he shows he shows up in Anti Oedipus where it's not really that they're well they kind of shit on him, but 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 lightly, right? It, right. Like ah, you can keep Mouse, we'll do Nietzsche. Yeah. Um, does he appear in Liminal Economy? Is uh, you he know, maybe I just like off the hook? It I'll doesn't matter. It, it doesn't matter because even well, I'm if he's curious not now. Named, well, yeah. Well, <laughs> now the, the desire is there. I have to see. I have to I, know. Particularly the section on there are no primitive societies. You would think he is in part at least responding to Mouse, if not by name, then. It looks okay, like yeah, there so are... he, he shows up a couple times. Okay. The, yeah. So here's a reference to. First of all, methodologically, the society of the gift and counter gift plays in Baudrillard's thought the role of a reference. Lost, of course, of an alibi which cannot be found <laughs> in his critique of capital. Baudrillard does not m- mean to speak of nature and naturality. How is it that he does not see that the whole problematic of the gift of symbolic exchange, such as he receives it from Mouse, with or without the additions and diversions of Bataille, Caloy, and Lacan, 
belongs in its entirety to Western racism and imperialism, that it is still ethnology's good savage, slightly libidinalized, where he inherits, which he inherits with the concept. Yeah, I think that that's, I think that that's great. Uh, so that's probably in or around that section uh, of the There Are No Primitive Societies. Yeah, it's in the Desire and, Name Marx chapter. Uh, here's another, yeah. this is good too here. Mouse must not be read as the discovery of a pre-capitalist or at least a mercantilist economy, but as the invention and perfecting in the heart of this economy of its indispensable complement of interiority, exteriority. Replace the gift with symbolic exchange and you remain in the same sphere. For exchange always takes place among unitary bodies or those destined to be unitary, even if they are prevented forever by the bar of the signifier from bringing this unity about. And even if they are always driven by their splitting into two, by the ensuing as Hegel used to say, to exchange something, even if only pieces of themselves, exchangists remain perforated, like poles or ideas of mercantilist reason rather than as existence remains the exchange requires the polarization, this encephalization, and an in-and-out movement, a cycle of flows, the circle of a market and its central balance. Whether or not one exchange's effects does not modify this configuration. It simply dramatizes it. Yeah, I, and I think that Leotard is interesting here saying that Mouse needs to be read as the indispensable anterior-exterior side Leotard is very right, and I think Deleuze and Guattari would agree with this, that one thing that Mouse seems to do, especially towards the end of the book when he's reaching his conclusions, and I'm not trying to jump too far ahead, but, but there is a sense in which he is still under a kind of illusion of the progress of history, whether this be Hegelian or whether this be just a inborn Western prejudice thinking that there's this natural evolution that societies progress in and that if you are looking at these so-called primitive societies and they are focusing on exchange and the, and the gift economy is salient there, there's this idea that given enough time, they would reach the status of quote unquote modern societies, right? Based on credit, based on right. yeah. speculation, whatever. And so this is why when he gives the moral conclusions and he wants to say, like, we have to find this happy medium between, you know, communism and egoism or individualism. Right. He doesn't really have a good word for yeah. that. This is why the primitive societies, as he calls it, can show this model that, hey, things used to be different back then. I think that that's, I think that the way he phrases it does make it seem like He's I think I think Leotard is, is, is correct, but I would just add that he's saying not to read Mouse the way that Mouse wants to be read. Right. Because Mouse himself seems to want us to read him as considering these societies as pre-capitalist. And Leotard sees, says, like, no, that's 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 kind of an error. And if we're going to get something out of Mouse, we got to be aware. We got to we have to be aware of this type of romanticization. Right. right, that we see in Rousseau with the noble yeah, savage yeah. and things like this. It's, it's a new updated form of noble savagery that I think Mouse presents us with. And so that's kind of why it's good to go back and tackle the, this original document and see what we can get from him while also pointing out where just, I mean, if we're going to start with criticism, we, this is, this, that is the perfect way to do it. So thanks, Mr. Yeah. Leotar. <laughs> so interestingly for me, what it sounded like Mouse was getting at is that there's, I'll use the metaphor of firmware 
there's okay. a certain human firmware operating okay. and those tendencies still operate. The user interface of capitalism, of commodity production is laying over the top of this certain type of firmware relative to the law of exchange, let's say. Okay. As yeah. a sort of as a sort of fundamental of human really, yeah, of I guess social reproduction, we could say, might be the best way to phrase right. it. Yeah, I mean But that's the impression. I, I didn't necessarily get there is well, there's maybe one quote I saw that I was kind of was getting this noble savage sort of image from. But overall, like that was what my sort of one of my biggest takeaways from the book was, you know, it it was even reminding me too of or like pushing me in this direction of capitalism being a quote unquote natural, I'll, you know, and sort of the way Bedu is claimed to have embraced that sort of naturalist of, of capital in the sense that, you know, I've said before too that, well, capital does at least seem natural in the way that it attaches itself so successfully to the drives. But here, you know, I don't know the way that this, how highly regulated exchange is amongst these pre-capitalist societies in quotes, I guess, what would you, I don't know, what, how would you even, how would you characterize them if not pre-capitalist? Because I feel like even though maybe some of the fundamental laws of exchange remain the same, commodity production surplus, like those act, or at least commodity production, right? They're not producing commodities, right? at least not the same scale. It's not, you know what I mean? That sort of- It's not the same regime. Yeah. Right, right. Even the Barter is used very, you know, he hardly mentions barter as, you know, the main focus is on these kind of potlatch. Yeah, we'll, we'll get to potlatch. Gifts, we'll, et cetera. We'll definitely get to potlatch, which I know is very important for your your thinking. And, you know, I guess what I would say is you're right. There was only a few moments where Mouse, whether unintentionally or not, seems to fall into this line that societies naturally evolve to a money system and to a and to a credit system. I don't even know if that was his intention, right? Yeah. That he that he but the other thing I would say is yeah, we you do have to use scarecrows with pre-capitalists, especially, you know, thinking about someone like Pierre Claster and Society Against the State, you know, I mean, I don't know a good prefix for right. their relation to capitalism. I mean, with Deleuze and Guattari, they they want to paint this picture where, as I, as I kind of told you, capitalism is this negative that haunts the primitive territorial machines. Mm-hmm. So I guess that that would be the question, you know, cause for Claster, it's this, it's this thing where like societies without a state, you know, it's kind of the Darwin question. Why are there still monkeys if humans evolved? Right. Why are there still apes? Why are there still other simians? Yeah. He kind of asks that same question. How is it that you have, these primitive societies in say South America, primitive, you know, again, in, in quotes, and then you have Incan empire. How does that, so it's like, it's not that given a certain amount of time, these States would become capitalist flourishing capitalists or flourishing States, right. For cluster, it's a, it's a difference in kind rather than just a difference in degree. Yeah. And so I think that's where Leotard is trying to say, the interesting thing is this logical anteriority and exteriority rather than a chronological anteriority. Which is interesting because it's sort of, right, does that not run contra Marx in terms of 
the development and evolution of capital from feudalism, et cetera? Oh, Jesus. I mean, like <laughs> th that would be something where we would have to look at the end of volume one of capital with yep. primitive accumulation right. and, and test and sort of put him in dialogue with mouse because right. mouse doesn't really, when he talks about exchange, he doesn't even say things like he could, which is that in the potlatch, which I will let you discuss in just a second. I mean, in the, he distinguishes two basic types of exchange where it's the total services, where it's basically, there's always this constant give and take potlatch in general. And then there's the more restricted form of trade that is more for usefulness. Right. So it's interesting yeah. that the bigger cycle, the bigger, the, either the Kula or the potlatch is opposed to this negotiation on, on price right. uh, or, or comparison of, of value. Um, that is a more restricted we could call it marketplace. That's a yeah. more restricted type regulated, of regulated. Yeah. Yeah. Exchange. Where it's because if you're, if you're kind of negotiating and quibbling in the potlatch, there's something that you, you lose face, right? You, you lose respect. That type of quibbling and negotiation and haggling is restricted to a much smaller type of exchange that, uh, that has its own rules. And I think that that's where that's the that's where the heart of modern capitalist societies go, right? Is growing that smaller type of exchange into exchange to core. Yeah. I think that that's that's where Mouse doesn't even talk about use value and exchange value, right? When he talks about the True. exchange right. of gifts, that's not even yeah. it's just not helpful. I think. Right. Anyway. What's interesting about this is, you know, the common, you know, a critique amongst, and I think more so the Marxist set of, of anarchism would be that, you know, left to their own devices in an anarchistic system, then capitalism would simply re reassert itself after a certain period of time. Things would evolve back into capitalism. Even if you like, let's say the, the anarchist spontaneous revolution occurs globally, we're in this anarchistic uh, global arrangement that after, you know, a couple of generations or so, capitalism would naturally evolve and dominate again. So I think that's quite interesting because this kind of goes counter to the traditional kind of Marxist evolution of capital, whatever. It's interesting to think of one of the ways, I mean, he talks about the gift, but he also talks about sacrifice yeah. and how sacrifice itself plays a part into buying or I say buying into garnering respect and honor for one's tribe, for one's chief, for one's own name. You know, he's talking about burning houses, obviously uh, sacrificing slaves, etc. So, you know, it's, it's, I think that that's where Bataille gets interested in this question of expenditure, right? This question of, what one of the tribes that Mouse talks about, the Haida, they talk about killing wealth. And it's kind of interesting to think that that that's consistent with what you know Claster talks about, where he says, you know, where he talks about only you know the the natives only wanted only working three hours a day precisely to keep a basic type of accumulation, right? Enough, right. enough yeah. food for the population times two or whatever. And most of their work is done in a certain season where it's clearing forest, right, for either for agrarian purposes or whatever. But it's not it, it's not about maximizing work efforts. He even says that when they first encounter 
you know, the white man and they trade for metal tools, like metal axes, it's because they can do 10 times the work. They can get 10 times the work done in uh, the same amount of time, right? With stone axes. So it's, it's actually, it's not to like increase more productivity. It's to work less. And he doesn't follow up on this, but he says that in fact, something negative, that something bad actually happens when they start to get into trading for these metal tools, that, that things start to go wrong. And I wonder what he means by that, but it could be get us on this path about what you were saying, right? Yeah. That, and, and, it's, and it's, I think that that's the, the question, right? It's like the question of chron- like chron- chronologically, it, it almost feels like there is a technical surplus, a technical productivity that, that creates conditions of possibility for the quote unquote evolution towards capitalism. And what Claster wants to argue is that that's hard to swallow though, because these tribes are technically insufficient. In fact, they are adapted perfectly to the milieu, right? They have the technical wherewithal that they need and they don't try to go above and beyond that. And so I think that that's just the, the, the question of, you know, of, of where's the singularity, right? Where is it? Where does it just, and, but I guess that, that would be my thing when I, I can't remember it, but it's around, it's, it's in the conclusion area, which you are in now, and I'll let you quote this, but it is in this part where Mouse is kind of talking about this. You have primitive societies and you have money societies and you have credit societies. And he's kind of implying at least that there is a natural evolution. And, and I think that Deleuze and Guattari and some of these other thinkers like Leotard want to either question that or problematize it in, yeah. in various ways. I kind of get this, the situation you just described relative to production and creating more surplus free time, let's say, would be that this is like an attempt, this is like libidinal economy in the sense that what they're trying to do is keep the libidinal band from overheating in a sense, right? Mm, mm. And what they're, how this is achieved is through this, we talked about the other day, it's kind of politics and warfare by other means by virtualizing it a la trade and trade via and trade in the sense of the really i guess more so exchange would be better than trade exchange in the potlatch yeah there's an antagonism in the gift giving right it's social conflict but it's virtualizing that to prevent warfare to stabilize the libido band so that you don't have this constant I guess arrive at some what is it, like some some stability within right. the band to keep it from overheating to keep it uh, I forget what that phrase would be like a certain well, stasis point. Uh, well, uh, to to reach various stages of equilibrium, right, right, equilibrium, various various plateaus, even because to a certain extent each and and I guess right now we are we are already describing potlatch, which mm-hmm. which we should for the listener if they haven't heard that term. Mouse traces, traces it back to having various etymological origins of meaning, basically to eat, to feed, to consume, but also uh, one of the tribes, potlatch, basically means gift, yeah. giving. And so potlatch is what he calls the, he basically wants to describe it both as an institution. Uh, and so like, you know, it can be exemplified in certain ceremonies and festivals of gift giving, but he also wants to generalize it and see it as like this total circuit of exchange of usually with an agonistic character, which is what you were getting at. And the, and the antagonism and the agonism is basically about his implication that 
studying these societies, he's found in these cycles of giving, one is not by receiving gifts. There is embedded within that the necessity obligation to right. return the gift with interest. Yeah. And so it, and so it's you become beholden to the giver, but you also kind of up the ante. And this is the accumulated interest by giving back in kind, but also uh, exceeding, in, right? exceeding that right in degree. And I assume that this is why you were searching for that word of equilibrium or plateau, right? Because at certain points, as we said, sacrifice is one of these ways, one of these elements that enters into the exchange of gathering prestige and honor, which is part of the driving motive force of the potlatch, the the, the circuit of exchange in general, right? Is to, by giving to you, I sort of put you in my, you're in my debt. Right. Right, as we would say. And you can't, if you refuse my gift, you lose honor. Yeah. Because it's about, the refusal is the fear that you can't repay, you can't pay me back or you can't give a gift that would be equal or better uh, right. than what I've given you, right? So mm-hmm. that's where the antagonism comes in. Uh, do you want to say any other words about potlatch before you read this quote? Not yet. Not yet. I'm, I may come back to it. I mean, I was going to th- give like a modern example of something like, I mean, some of this still happens in terms of making it rain uh-huh. uh, would be an example. In the club, making it rain, you have the ability to get, there's a prestige about giving away you can take this to an absurd limit with the Dark Knight Joker sitting on the pile of money. Right, and lights just, it on fire. He just yeah. lights it on fire because for him, it's not about, that's not where the power lies, right? The power isn't in the It's, a, it's not about money. It's about <laughs> sending a message. That's right. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's exactly right. I thought this was really, this is page 98. This may be, this is kind of skipping ahead, but while we're on the topic, sort of, you did mention the primitive territorial machine. So that was quite interesting here that Mouse makes the statement and has not really followed up very much on for a very long t- time, man was something different and he has not been a machine for very long, made complicated by a calculating machine, which I thought was quite interesting relative to, you know, that whole thing in Anti-Oedipus. And you could probably elucidate that a little bit better than I could. But I just found this, uh, the fact that he says machine here quite interesting He's for not been maybe. a machine for very long. Right. Yeah. I, you know, See, now here's where, okay. So he, in this sense, maybe here's a instance where perhaps noble savage is occurring, right? Yeah, right. I think so. I think so because he's using machine in a pejorative sense. And I think that for Deleuze and Guattari machine can have those aspects, but that's, that's not, that's not the main thrust, right. For, especially for Guattari who wants to see the unconscious as machinic, who is trying to develop this language of talking about desire in the same sense as machines. I think here for, for, for Mouse, though, he's, he's talking about, without saying it, seemingly he's talking about the Marxian theme of alienation, right? Or just the way of conceiving the machine. Almost, there's also like a Luddite feeling to it. Yeah. Um, not that... There isn't something positive in Ludditism itself. I mean, Ludditism isn't isn't just negative where it's like break the machines in order to stall progress. There is something also productively being done, at least on the on that micropolitical level. But I would say, you know, with Deleuze and Guattari, they, they try to go back and I'm trying to remember the author they cite. Uh, it doesn't matter, but they talk about 
the Soceus as a mega machine of which humans are, are parts. So I think in that sense, there is this, this kind of negative vision, but, you know, I, I, I would say that mouse is using a very, you know, he's using a very constricted sense of machine here that is definitely not, it's what Gautry would say. It's like, it's, it's both too abstract and not abstract enough. Right. Yep. And it's on the whole negative, but this thing about not, not being a machine for very long. I don't know. I mean, you know, there's something about potlatch and the circuits of exchange that it is a gigantic machinery in a yeah. certain sense. Right. And Which so he even, and I yeah. think he even, even kind of gets, he seems to have to get that here uh-huh. I, I a little agree. bit because he's, he's talking about how these same kind of rules and things are still sort of apply in our current system. Yeah, and I, I would also say the the other negative side is what Mouse is trying to do by using machine in a pejorative sense is this question of the status of the calculating machine. Yeah, right. Because we, we we just we just talked about how the two different circuits of exchange, the one more general of Potlatch or Kula, right, the more general system, mm-hmm. and then that more circumscribed. I forget the term for it that he uses, but the more circumscribed type of exchange that would potentially lend itself to the type of calculations that would already put your prestige and honor in, in question if you applied them to the to the potlatch in general. So I yeah. think that that's, that's part of what Mouse is trying to get back to is this, this notion of two different types of exchange, one with the gift economy, if you want to use it that term loosely, and the other that might actually be involving use value and exchange value and be the prototype or the or the archetype or whatever, the general form of that dialectic that we see with, with Marx. Yeah. Or we see thought through by Marx. Interestingly here too, I just to go into the potlatch and the way that the gift, the return gift, the counter gift must exceed the initial gift. You have to pay it back with interest. What is interesting for me is how does this, particularly in the when it comes to calculating machines. Okay, so in modern economics, we have commodity money, or not commodity money, but money that acts as a form of general equivalency between between commodities or objects or whatever, right? Yeah. How is interest calculated without a form of general equivalency? How does one, how does one come to the correct amount to give, right? How is that calculated? What mechanism is operating on, on that side he gives only like a, a few examples of this, but one of the examples that I remember is um, chief gives brother-in-law or nephew a, a blanket. And then next year at a wedding ceremony or something else, the two blankets are given back, right? Even if there had already been things done to repay the chief for, for that gift, services rendered or labor, whatever. It's the fact that still what is, he even has a number for, he says like in these societies generally, you know, over the course of a year, interest is 30% to hundred percent. Yeah. How the fuck did you calculate that? But I right. think that's, I think that that almost that numerical, first of all, that's a wide margin, right? But, but with yeah. like blankets, both like blankets, you can't give one and a third blanket back. Right. Exactly. You, you know what I mean? You give a, you, it's, it's a whole unit and so I think that would be my, my response would be, it's really only, and he, he himself says this, in the evolution of societies as he sees it, 
mm-hmm. uh, implicit in his thought. It's really only when you get to, you know, because Marx himself shows that gold and silver are both commodities themselves, but then they take on this extra form of being equivalent for all commodities, right? right. Being the standard. Yeah. You know, and I think that that would be where Mouse is trying to say that there hasn't yet been one type of commodity, even even when he talks about certain primitive forms of money, like the shells or the bracelets or whatever, mm-hmm. they're not necessary. They haven't yet taken that extra dialectical step of right. reifying like gold or silver mm-hmm. coinage, I think um, yeah. would be so. That's where I think that it's it, the calculating machine presupposes already this type of um, or the conjunction of the man as working machine, as labor machine and, and the calculating machine together. Those are already social machines that take on their highest form or their most pronounced form under a capitalist regime where you have the abstract flows made equivalent right? In, in, in a monetary form. I wish I understood surplus value better because I think one notion here in this sort of like taking a look at this, this kind of evolutionary view of economics is that the sort of economies of scale, it's easier to create that surplus value at a, at a higher scale. It seems that. And it's almost by just virtue of trade itself yeah. that surplus is created. I, and again, I don't understand the mechanisms behind that kind of shit enough to like really go in there. But I don't know. It just makes, that's kind of one sort of question I have. How does this work as far as that goes? Because there is a certain, it's almost like in capitalism, the surplus time, et cetera, is give, it all flows up to the capitalist. They're kind of siphoning off everyone's sort of life force, soul, et cetera, which we can get in. We'll get into that notion a bit later. I mean, that's why Marx and Engels describe it as, being vampire-like. Right. And haunted by dead labor as well as was kind of, that's the little kernel to think of too, as far as part of the notion of potlatch was that, or for some of the tribes at least, or or group rather, was that there's a bit of the person, the gift giver's spirit is contained in the item, which is part of what is compelling the count you to give the gift back. There's a certain, there's a certain accursedness in not giving that back or, or something like that. There's a spiritual deity element involved in as part of the potlatch for these societies. Things themselves exchanged have spirits, not only of their own, but imbued by their owners. And in exchange, there's part of that energy that is literally is a kind of surplus value, whether it be of code or desire or jouissance, you know, and it's in the exchange itself that, as you were saying, right, you know, it's because this is why he turns to the Roman notion of nexum. Yeah. Which is one of the oldest forms of contract that these ethnographers have studied. And nexum loosely is I pledge my own person, I pledge my slavery for a certain amount of credit or for being able to repay back whatever it is that's being loaned. So I borrow off of my own freedom. And yeah, I like sharecropper or what's the indentured servitude is sort of an analogous. It's similar to that. Yeah. I mean, cause it, cause you know, but so I think that the, the, this is why Mouse himself says uh, like, 
in the exchange, one in giving, and insofar as I imbue the objects I give to you with part of my spirit, there's a sense in which what is circulating too are 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 persons and names. Yeah. Right. I mean, like for mouse to have exchange in any general sense, one has to pledge oneself and one's worth. One can't be unworthy of paying back with interest. And in continuing the exchanges and continuing the invitations and continuing the, even, I mean, like, I think the most basic primary is, is the, the gift of food, right? That's why potlatch means food and gift, right? Because you, I mean, this survives as potluck is kind of a remnant mm-hmm. of this tradition as well to just to note that. No, I, that, that, that can't be a, well, it could be a happy coincidence, right? Because usually you're bringing pots. <laughs> and I don't think the word pot has maybe anything to do with, with potlash, although that, that, that's an etymological question that we could look at later. But yeah, you're right. It's, it's, I think that what lies in the surplus value itself is the circulation of, of the spirits, right? Because even the chieftain's name, the tribe's name is an inheritance of the spirits of the ancestors, the spirits of the gods, Right. So there is this, that's why the interesting section about how not to, how it's dangerous to, uh, it's both dangerous and beneficial to participate in giving to the gods. Potentially all future wealth, luck, fortune is from the spirits, from the gods. So you don't want to piss off the spirits and the gods. You don't want to, to sully your name and ruin it or lose it yeah. uh, by failing to reciprocate yeah and looking up the etymology of potluck you're right i still think though that the logic of it oh the logic yeah the sort of firmware if you'll forgive the metaphor of humanity is because mouse says you can still see these kind of fundamentals playing themselves out even within this advanced economy in quotes yeah and i think mouse is trying to thread the needle i mean i already brought up that he he wants to say like it can't be full communism, can't be full individualism. There has to be this happy medium. And I think he's like trying liberalism to, I mean, <laughs> was a word what he thought. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 I do think that it's more of the European variant, right? Because he, he's, he's advocating for things like social safety nets and universal health care and things like this, right? He's, he's trying to say like, look, we could do capitalism, but you know, capitalists could be a little bit better at potlatch thing, maybe be a little bit more uh, nice to the workers. He kind of has these moral, not prescriptions, but suggestions about how politics could regain this lost Socratic art in in the times of, uh, whether we call it vulture capitalism or just, you know, it's like capitalism with a happy face, I think is what he's going for. And I think that honestly, you can shit on him and, or you can say his, he's not extreme enough, but the fact that he even suggests he makes that move from the description of, of potlatch and, and exchange and the gift economy that he goes from a merely descriptive to offering certain, you can call them prescriptive suggestions, uh, what can be applied. I mean, honestly, it's, it's, I think that that, that move alone makes him, is, is, is one of the reasons why I think he resonated. I don't, I don't think you resonate if you don't make that conclusion section that's like, how does that apply today? Disinterested scholars would have stuck with the, with the, the primary level. So I at least give him credit for that. Yeah. 
we talked a little bit about, you can kind of see again, some of the ways that this functions, I guess, some of these little traditions maintain themselves to this day as well. We were talking about via DM, like in A Song of Ice and Fire, Game of Thrones universe, particularly among the northern, the northern people, it, you're supposed to offer bread and salt to a guest that enters your home. And if that person, and if you offer, you have to offer that and the person has to accept it. And part of that is effectively sort of like a contract. There's trust there that while you are in my home, I will not attack you. I will not kill you and vice versa. And it's called guest right. And the violation of this guest right will bring a curse upon the family that, that doesn't live up to that sort of obligation in the sense of like Rob Stark in the Red Wedding, right? Walder Frey offers them bread and salt. They partake of the bread and salt, yet there's the betrayal and the murder after that. So now the Frey family takes on this. It's ambiguous as to whether the curses are real or et cetera, right? And it has yet to play itself out in the books, but in the, obviously within the TV show, Arya, ironically, of the faceless men who give the gift of death to the whole Frey family, basically. She like, you know, wipes them out almost entirely. In this way, the curse is operating, you know, operating itself based on this notion of, of guest, right? This notion of the promise of a sort of gift, right? Interestingly too, like just to get into the faceless men who give the gift, which is a metaphor, you know, that's what they call death, is the faceless men began, they got started in the minds of Valyria with the old dragon lords, the Targaryens, etc. They were slaves that worked the mines who originally gave the gift of death to one another. Then it became this whole organization that will, they can assassinate someone for you and you have to give them a gift or you have to pay for their services, but the payment for their services is not static. The payment of the services are based upon on the person contracting the faceless men. It's a sort of sliding scale approach. For example, um, you know, Cersei would have to pay a far heftier price than, you know, someone than like a, a peasant, for example. You know, we talked a little bit about this because with Frey, right, he is, one could say that Rob Stark wrongs him first. Yes. If, if we want to play devil's advocate, Rob Stark needs True, that. right. He breaks his promise. He breaks his he promise. He enters a contract True, that, right. because point. Walter Frey has all these, you know, horny old man guy. He's got all these bastard sons and daughters. Nobody wants to enter alliances with him. And so he can't, he, he can't marry them off. It is kind of humorous. Right. And Rob needs, needs this access because the Freys are, you know, they, they, yeah, they're the choke point of Westeros, effectively, they have geographically strategic, speaking. They have, yeah, they have a very strategic uh, placement, and he needs access to, to that place, free passage. And he breaks his vow. He breaks his, uh, his oath to marry one of um, Walter Frey's daughters. And, you know, and I think that that, in Walter Frey's mind, already being, again, kind of left out. Because some of this, we hear him kind of complain, like, you know, you never wanted me at your feasts and in your parties and shit. Right. I mean, you know, he's he's already saying, like, look, I already lost all face. I already lost. My name is, is worthless. And you, you you fucked me over again. So now now I can violate the right of hospitality. Now, obviously, as a return, a type of yeah, return gift as a, itself, as a right? return, <laughs> that's right, as, as a vengeance. 
if you really go down that rabbit hole, yeah, you can make some justifications for him. But that doesn't mean that his gift of death and betrayal isn't going to be returned. have its own have its yeah. own consequences. Yeah. As well, yeah. And there's something like this in Dante's Inferno. I'm trying to remember. It's one of the very lowest levels. It's it's right above the level where um, you know Satan plugs the abyss and he's chewing on Cassius and Brutus and Judas. <laughs> and I don't remember the the name. It's probably I'm sure Dante is thinking of some contemporary because that's the whole book, right? There is a chef who feeds a he like cooks a he kills a prince or something and, and oh, cooks yeah. him and feeds it to the king. Well, there's Titus and, Andronicus is very much in that realm too, right? Yeah, and it was interesting that the argument is it's like it's not even the murder itself that's what Dante is focusing on. It's the violation of hospitality. Yeah, right, right, right. yeah, exactly. And, and and the same and same thing. This is why I was talking about the Cyclops with you with the Polyphemus in the Odyssey, right? With the the race of the Cyclops, and we could do a whole ethnography, sociology of of the descriptions of them, but. The familia, as Mouse points out, the, the household, which is where hospitality is supposed to be given, as you said, salt and bread, Polyphemus obviously perverts this and is going to eat his guests, right? So this is kind of a similar theme of violating the, or, or this is kind of a similar theme that obviously Martin is, is taking up and, and playing out the logic of it in Game of Thrones. Yeah, and they even have a tale as well of I think it's called the Rat Cook or something. So hmm. within the within a Song of Ice and Fire lore, there's a tale about this cook that basically fed yeah fed people to them. Uh, I forget the specifics of it, but it goes to this other portion like within the actual narrative of Game of Thrones, and I forget which book it was either a Clash of Kings or a Storm of Swords where. There's this fray pies, like meat pies, that there are right. a couple of frays go missing at Winterfell. And then the implication is that the two frays were killed and put in these pies and fed back to these frays who are visiting Winterfell. Now, is that after Red Wedding or before? I believe it's after. I was just going to say, add some more reason for Frey to fuck over the Starks. But okay. Yeah, because so the implication, yeah, so the, I guess there's the implication there directly that, that the phrase, but like, I don't know. I feel like it's kind of going, it's like foreshadowing something in addition. Yeah. yeah. Um, something also I want to note about this notion of bread and salt is that there's a restaurant here in Austin called Russian house. And okay. uh, I believe it's on like, it's on fifth or sixth street. And I don't know. I don't want to speak to um, authoritatively, but I believe it's relatively authentic Russian food. Cool. And I went there with a friend of mine several years ago. And one interesting thing that I noted was that they provided bread and salt, straight up a little dish of, of salt crystals and bread as part of the, as part of the meal, sort of, you know, I wonder if, you know what I mean? When you go to a restaurant, they give you bread to start out. Like, I wonder if that's yeah. this sort of same thing, like express the sort of tradition that's kind of lost its own origin, right? That still kind of persists in a way. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Italian restaurants want to get all fancy and give you a balsamic vinegar and and whatever the fuck, uh, Olive which, oil, yeah. which I'm just not really a fan of, but that's a really cool point to make about, well, we had the phrase breaking bread, right? Yeah. Which, which is not something one does merely within one's family. It usually generally means the, the meaning of at least two groups, right? 
you know, or, or and, and, it, and it is a means of fostering community and exchange, right? So yeah, I think that obviously that this metaphor or this trope is probably a better word. This figure yeah, is, yeah. is is um, is ingrained, you know, whether to use your firmware trope or not. Yeah, BIOS or something. The reciprocity sort of the I guess you would say the regulation of potlatch, right? Is the recipro- There's like three parts of it. It's one must receive, one must give, and one must pay back. Yes. There's reciprocity. Yeah, well, yeah, obligation. Reciprocity being the third, right? Yeah, okay, so the obligation to give, the obligation to receive, and the obligation to reciprocate with interest. Yeah, and, and, it, and as Mouse said, the interest is, is variable. It seems like 100% is just like if you double the gift, even if it's the, the same type of item, if you, if you give yeah. back twice over, you're, you're good. Like that's, that's kind of considered the height of, of, the, uh, of the giving. And I mean, I, I'm even thinking about how, I mean, today is the, com, is the, the ceremonies ending the Olympic Games. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting, right, that every four years, countries come together and in, in a given location, obviously there's politics involved and in, in which city will get to host. Usually it's an economic boom, a boon for the host. This year, you can't really say the same thing, sadly. Just thinking about how, you know, one of the things too that we involve in potlatch, because we mentioned sacrifice. Yeah. But it's obviously uh, comp- competitions, right? There is a sense too in which part of the festivities, part of the celebration of of life and achievement and excellence, right, is is put on display. And and I think that that's, that's just kind of interesting to think that even though the modern game started in 1896, we we trace it back to to the Athenians, but I'm sure we can see it in basically any any society we look at, right? The even from the smallest means of of measuring skills and as I said, athletic excellence, right? There's something interesting there about the prestige for, you know, not just who wins the competitions, but also holding them and, and, and allowing for a space for many different tribes or clans, right, to come and, and show off. Because it is, it is about showing off. I yeah. mean, there, there's prestige involved in, in the medal rankings, right? I mean, there's seen some shit on Twitter where it's like, yeah, the way that the U- U.S. will display the U.S. had metal more medals, yeah. <laughs> but but it had had less gold. I mean, you can you can always do that kind of shit, and it and and honestly, that that to me is 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 petty because it it belies the fact that it's it is it isn't about necessarily who wins the most medals. I think that you have to have a there's a certain edipality to that as well, right? Yeah, there's a certain nationalism to it. It's it should be more about a coming together rather than the way that it sort of turns into this nationalist sort of thing, this competition where it should be like this, the Olympic rings, right? The idea being to unify. Yeah. Yeah. To put down our differences, to, to put down our conflicts, et cetera, and yeah. come together and, and compete in a way that is not destructive without the sacrifice of, of the warriors. Honestly, it's, uh, you know, the, the last real time, I mean, in, in, in my imagination, this year and at Rio, even there wasn't a lot of 
at least I didn't come across a lot of nationalistic fervor. I mean, I, I feel like with the fall of the USSR as the big bad other, right? I mean, like, you know, it, you, you don't really see it. And so like just people being snarky about, about how the, the, the medals are ranking. It's like, get over it. I mean, yeah. I, I've been watching um, today. We were watching rhythmic gymnastics. That shit was pretty fucking. That's that, that's that's really cool stuff. But yeah, you're right about the rings and 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 honestly, it is about. It's not. I mean, part of the reciprocation is in the competitions, right? Is pushing each other to outdo one another, and right. and that and that's the like basic formula for potlatch. Yeah, and sort of right the host the host country, right, as well or host city, etc. Sure. Oh yeah, that opening ceremony where they where they put a. I mean. Japan did a more tasteful opening ceremony. They didn't go over the top because obviously this past year has fucking sucked for everybody. But you look at Rio or you look at 2008 in, in Beijing, part of the prestige is the spectacle that the host nation gets to put on that, that first day. Now, as a kid, I was far more invested, I think, in the, the metal count had a more, I guess, a higher resonance for me as a kid than it does now. Now, I didn't even watch the Olympics at all. I agree with that. Yeah. Growing up, that, that, that fascinates me. That fascinated me too. And, you know, you're going to root for the home team, right. right? Which doesn't necessarily mean the host nation, which means you might as well, if you're going to root for a team, you know, I didn't choose to be on America's team, but hey, that's uh, so, so yeah, I mean, I'm going to, I'm going to root for um, if Americans are, are in it and they can win something. Sure. I'll root for them because it gives me something to invest in, but it's not the same. I think in my view, it's, you know, it's um, most of what I heard about the Olympics in normal media was just about Simone Biles, her pulling out because of. Well, you can see that sort of edipality express itself there because the a lot of the reactionary point was trying to like call her out. Yeah, saying that like suck it up, do it. And, and that's what athletes have had to deal with almost always. And the fact that, you know, her coaches. We're like, no, take care of yourself. It's good. That's a good, I mean, it needs to be done, especially given the scandals and fucking U.S. gymnastics with uh, Nasser and, uh, and that whole tragedy. I mean, mental health is important. And it wasn't just like she was freaking out. It, was a, it wasn't just a psychological thing. It was a physiological thing. Right. Like she was, I forget what they, what they called it, the, the spins or what is it? The, basically her, her mind and her body weren't on the same fucking path right so yeah. when you're when you don't she could potentially really hurt herself if she's doing five flips in the in the air and she doesn't know where the the ground is and shit this is a, a typical thing for for gymnasts and so like obviously speaking out of out of your ass and wanting to i mean it doesn't it doesn't hurt that she's a woman and she's black right for conservatives to attack her but even if it were a white man they would they might say the same thing and right. just, you know, why, what's with what's with culture these days, soy boy? You know, fucking suck it up. And I think that that just it's easy to say that when you're not the one who is potentially risking breaking their fucking neck for yeah. for a medal for for something symbolic about not just it's not necessarily about national. That's I mean, you're right about the edible thing. It's like do it for the nation, do it for do it for daddy. Yeah. Where it's it's the supposed phallus. to be about it's supposed to be about human achievement, right? It's supposed to be about individual accomplishment but also individual i mean it's it's a group thing because you know it takes a fucking village right so <laughs> i get i get that part but you know to i think that overwhelmingly though those voices were drowned out by 
by trying to understand and 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 sympathetic there's always going to be haters right you know right but you can see this kind of like either if you don't do this then i'm castrated which is kind of interesting right yeah i you you are the medium for my vicarious participation why why aren't you you know why aren't you uh you know why why aren't you fulfilling my expectations and i think that that's if it had been someone lower on the totem pole it probably doesn't even make news maybe hopefully it does but it's simone biles she was the she was the one name circulating throughout these games for the most part and i think that that that's why the reaction was overwhelmingly good there were some negatives but there were there were a lot of but but it, you know that, i think that's the thing like if anything she needs to team up with fucking michael phelps and keep pushing <laughs> the narrative about taking mental health seriously not just for not just for athletes i mean we don't as a nation probably you know as a fucking species take mental health seriously enough so yeah I got off. I'm sorry, but I was trying to make the Olympics potlatch <laughs> thing, uh, you know. Well, there. Uh, I mean, I think it does. You can see the, again, that sort of kind of firmware operating, at least in the background, at least in the thrust of what the Olympics ideally should represent is a coming together. There's an abundance to it. There is a certain potlatch yeah. in the athletes sacrificing their bodies, et cetera, for, for this side of this sort of glory, for this human, this kind of almost this universalist notion of humanity, right? Pushing oneself to physical excellence. Yeah. Like the excess, the commitment that it takes, the sacrifice on behalf of the athletes and what, what they sacrifice Yeah, they for, for their own excellence, their, right? Right. They exchange years of their life, their time, their bodies. Yeah. I mean, so I, it's I that there is the same sort of relationship as far as production or I don't sort of exchange goes in a sense, right? Like there's still that, kind of basic law perhaps operates even within these things as they evolve. Like there's a certain kernel of, of the lost origin to kind of get Baudrillard in there. I guess maybe my point there is that there's a lost significance. Now it's all about money and IOC and bribing people, et cetera. Right. But the origin of the whole thing was to sort of this, this idealist universalist approach of modernity. I mean, you would say, I think, based upon when the Olympics starts and the modern Olympics begins. It's a certainly a modernist project. Yeah, I think so. A modern universalist project will bring every, you know what I mean? We can set aside our differences. We can come together in this sort of neutral arena of competition where the warriors are not sacrificed. Right. The athletes, the athletes are sort of a metaphor or of the warrior. And so we come together, we do this sort of makeshift war we had yes 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 war by (laughs) war by other means i think and that's what you that's what that's what you started off with by talking about this virtual side exactly Uh, this way of keeping the libidinal band in check and i think here too this is the one aspect of global trade free trade is the strategic element of that if we are trading with one another then we are less likely to attack one another mm -hmm. right that is the one perhaps biggest strategic, if you want to talk about global capitalism, that at least there's a positive element of trade. Who do we not trade with? We don't trade with Cuba. We don't trade with North Korea. I'm sure there's, a, you know I mean? There's sanctions, sanctions on, on Iran, et cetera, yeah. right? So it's the countries that we do not trade with that we have problems with. Yeah. Which I think is interesting. No, I mean, I mean, uh, that's, that's definitely... It's definitely a part of it. And it's, it's interesting because you caught yourself earlier 
very quickly when you were making trade the the general form and you caught yourself you're like no it's it's exchange and you're right i think that 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 gets us back to kind of what mouse is trying to show right is that giving with its reciprocation is the more general form and trade as we think of it with prices attached with negotiations with fluctuating markets based on calculating machines whatever that's that's the more restricted form that has somehow outstripped this old form, which still older form, which still subtends, right? Yeah, Every, yeah, yeah. Everything else. Right. That's a good quote. A gift is received with a burden attached. One does more than derive benefit from a thing or a festival. One has accepted a challenge and has been able to do so because of being certain to be able to reciprocate, to prove one is not unequal. Yeah, that's, that's a really good quote. That crystallizes everything we've just been talking about. Yeah. And it gets to that kind of image of the libidinal band I've been using to sort of, right, it's trying to create that equilibrium between different sides, different aspects, you know, different competing drives within the socius, the machinic unconscious, right? Those sort of conflicting elements of desire, I guess you would say. It is interesting, too, that with the notion of interest, specifically with the basic form of giving, which is giving food, breaking bread, one cannot repay immediately. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, at least there, there, so it presupposes a sort of minimum amount of time before the exchange or before the gift can be repaid in kind. And that's the interest. That's where some of the interesting parts become about this notion that before there are these written contracts, right? This notion of pledging that one can repay and one is equal to the task. It does become this thing where it's this happy medium, right? This kind of Goldilocks situation where it's not to repay immediately because that's impossible, but also not to wait too long. You got to have that happy, that happy medium point. And some of the potlatch with the bigger circuits of exchange, like the Kula that he describes, obviously that generally the, what I got from it was that it's a yearly thing. That one group, one year may give all of its gifts and come back with nothing. Whereas in the next year, they'll be the ones receiving, right? And it's this interesting cycle of these amplitudes of giving and receiving. And the question of when one has <laughs> not shown gratitude and, and, and soon enough, it, it becomes this interesting kind of political nicety, if you will, this element that that's it's unquantifiable, really. Along those lines, I thought that there was a quote about contracts and how contracts tie together two points in time. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. Which was kind of like what you were just talking about. And I shared this with in our group chat with a right. young Agamben and, ah, uh, yes. and okay, Cube yeah. Numina, because what this reminded me of, and it was super interesting to see, and I want to read this quote first, yeah. and then I'll go into why I think this is interesting. For we have no evidence that any of the legal systems that have evolved beyond the phase we are describing, in particular Babylonian law, remained ignorant of the credit process that is known in every archaic society that still survives today. There is another simple, realistic way of resolving the problem of two moments in time that are brought together in a contract, which Davi has already studied. And then there's the footnote. I haven't looked up that footnote, but what I thought 
was interesting here is relative to this is where blockchain stuff has some resonance and almost being this a throwback to this more caught myself about to say primitive form of the contract because what this does is this you know because the gift economy is highly regulated right as we've sort of we haven't sort of focused on that too much but you can we did say there's the obligation to give the obligation to receive the obligation to reciprocate and without that without those if you do not provide one of those functions then you are you sort of lose one it's almost akin to losing one's soul right if yeah. you if you fail on your on the part of your obligations you sort of forfeit your soul yeah mouse mouse directly says that so yeah you're right so the reason i thought this was kind of interesting relative to blockchain is that of course our, our good friend nick land um he has described the blockchain as solving the problem of space time it in a way it does mouse says resolving the problem of two moments in time that are brought together in the contract so with the blockchain, one can organize a smart contract that is a way of providing trust in the exchange. It's solidifying your obligation to me and my obligation to you, but without a without an intermediary uh, such as a state, right? Because in modern capitalism, the state operates as the third party to guarantee that both the help guarantee under the threat of violence that both parties live up to their obligations. The full faith and credit. Exactly, exactly. So I don't know, I just thought that was very interesting. I'm sure you could probably take this and, and run with it and do something more interesting. But I don't know, that's just something that stood out in my mind in this kind of, in the way that blockchain will enforce this network of trust without having to have a state, which is the sort of potentially revolutionary aspect of what blockchain has to offer, potentially, right? And in that sense, in that form, you're definitely right. I mean, Leotard himself says capitalism has outgrown the need for states. There's a legitimacy crisis for states with the acceleration of capitalism. He doesn't use that word, but you, you understand what I mean. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and so this question of, you know, stateless capital is, is a natural continuation in that in that way of thinking because there has to be there has to be trust if there's no trust then people won't exchange if i can't trust you to perform your aspect of the potlatch right then the whole system can't operate and and leotard gets into this in libidinal economy and specifically the, the mercantilism chapter where you had king henry the eighth try to pawn off he made this law basically that shillings don't have to have so much silver, right? And everyone started hoarding the the old coins that were worth their weight in gold, worth their weight in silver, and only circulated the the shitty stuff. Nobody wanted to hold on to that because they couldn't trust that it would be worth the same yeah. as uh, as as the coin that actually had its value in itself rather than in some institution. Right. Mark spends the opening of Capital Volume One going into how silver takes on that role. But yeah, anyway, that 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 was the thing you were you were talking about. If you don't trust the institution and 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 the the citizens of England at that time, no, they didn't they didn't trust. And it wasn't necessarily that King Henry is a bad guy, or you know, it was just that the future. There's nothing in the future to say that King Henry is not going to pass another fucking law and change 
the value of the coins that don't have the amount of silver that they used to. He was trying to cut costs and everyone knew that, knew why he would pass such a law. That same thing operates in modern economics when you think of runs on banks, right? Once the bank loses trust, once people lose trust in the banks, there's a run on the bank because of, you know, when you come to fractional reserve lending, et cetera, right? We have the FDIC, which insures deposits in banks up to $100,000 federally, right? State two, banks, two, or I think maybe well, it's 250. I, I think it's I thought two, it was 100,000, but. I had to go to the fucking bank to <laughs> do something. It, I saw that my bank had 250. Gotcha. I just noticed that, but there may be some other variations. Anyways, it's ultimately getting back to that issue of trust because I, I don't know you, right? Like I don't have a familial tie to you. I don't have a, any other social obligations to me. If you're a stranger, then I, we need this other third party to function as a sort of guarantor of exchange. Right. This is why Mouse has some of his comments on speculation at the end. And he's obviously not kind because even if he's still obviously thinking that capitalism, there's no alternative or that it's, it's, it's the right form. He knows that it, that it has excesses. I mean, he knows that it, that it has, uh, and, th- and he's writing this even before the fucking stock crash of 29. Do you have a um, quote that we would, would work for this um, in mind or anything? I was thinking again, I was thinking again of Leotard in the fifth chapter on capital when he is discussing the, the different crises in the 20th century. Mm-hmm. And he talks about the, the Russian shopkeeper. Oh, right. The cheese, who, yes, the cheesemonger. Yeah. Yeah. The cheese, the cheesemonger who's, who, as soon as he gets money from selling his cheese, he's going out and buying the cheese immediately because it's, it's worth more as the commodity. Yes. Than and, the, the currency, and, the, right. and the currency is, is fluctuating so rapidly due to inflation or stagflation. I forget which one. In, in any inflation. case, this question about trusting, this question about full faith and credit, right? Is, full is, faith and credit, yeah. It's definitely there. And so it's interesting, this not, not trusting. I think that you're right, that there is this sense of trust but also the sense of trusting that one's self-interest coincides with wanting to gain prestige. Yeah. And therefore to and therefore to return. I think that that trust is inherent in the, the potlatch system. Interesting. I wonder if the like super egoic injunction to enjoy has any relevant resonance in a sense, at least tangentially, at this obligation within and Baudrillard in Symbolic Exchange, I believe, gets at this notion of labor through consumption. So it's the potlatch is you have to produce, but you also have to consume and reciprocate. You know, we still operate by those three obligations. Yeah. Even within this quote unquote modern, modern capitalism, like that. And that's what I mean about this sort of that sort of idea of, of, of a BIOS or a firmware operating fundamental layer or strata, perhaps. Yeah, and, and, and here we can't confuse jouissance or surplus jouissance with utility, right? Because this is why Baudrillard, or not Baudrillard, this is why Bataille is so interesting when he's looking at useless expenditure. Right. Quote, unquote, useless from our point of view. Whereas we see with Mouse, with the great sacrifices, right, of, of throwing the copper ingots into the sea or burning the houses or burning up. Smashing the gifts, yeah. Smashing the gifts, sacrificing slaves, right? All of that is is this way of heightening prestige, right? You're, you're 
you're, you're also taking things out of the circulation of the of, of the potlatch. Mm-hmm. And in a certain sense, that has to be a way of keeping a certain equilibrium. Yes, yes. Exactly. Instead of it, instead of it, this, this is why I use the term plateau. Last I like libin- and libinal band too. Like I said, I know I've used that a couple of times, but just to throw that in there too. It's a libinal plateau, a, a circuitous plateau. Because if if we follow that logic that we always have to return with interest, at some point the system is negative feedback and it gets out of control. There's a sense in which one eventually cannot repay. Uh, and I think that's what Baudrillard is sort of gets at with this master building on the master slave dialectic from Hegel. Yeah. He's trying to think about how the system is not, will not be able to repay. And he hypothesizes that it's, that it's death, right? That, that instead of, instead of the system giving back little pieces of life back to the worker or the, you know, the elements of the system, this sort of fantastical immediate death could, could sort of shock it, shock what the does, system. How did, I mean, it. COVID sort of is almost operating. Is that to, I mean, perhaps, I don't know. I don't know if yeah. it's quite there, but it's some, I mean, it's kind of along those lines, I would say. Yeah. I guess that's, that's the thing is, is, is this is the main reason why we're reading mouse is to see, you know, if he can shed more light on what Baudrillard's doing. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm kind of uh, in the, in this question of sacrifice, which Mouse doesn't spend too much time on, but in this question of taking elements out of the exchange in order to, to reset a kind of equilibrium, which he does mention Jubilees, right? right? And you and I were talking about David Graeber, his book on debt and this question of uh, periodic, means of canceling debt as a way of keeping the system from, you know, getting out of control, whether naturally or artificially creating some kind of plateau in order for the cycle to start up again. You know, I, I, these are some of the questions that I want to keep entertaining when we, when we go back to symbolic exchange and debt. Does that, there's the page, I think it's 180 from anti-Oedipus. I did pull the quote about mouse and, um, and genealogy of morals. Yeah. I vaguely remember there being some something real germane to this whole discussion. This is the one I pulled. The great book of modern ethnology is not so much Mouse's The Gift as Nietzsche's On the Genealogy of Morals. At least it should be for the genealogy. The second essay is an attempt and a success without equal at interpreting primitive economy in terms of debt and debtor-credit relationships by eliminating every consideration of exchange or interest. You, <laughs> I can't pronounce it. What is uh, it's, it's like, like in the English manner, right? Like okay, the, gotcha. And if they are eliminated from psychology, it is not in order to place them in structure. Nietzsche has only a meager set of tools at his disposal, some ancient Germanic law, a little Hindu law, but he does not hesitate, as does Mouse, between exchange and debt. Bataille, motivated by a Nietzschean inspiration, will not hesitate either. The fundamental problem of the primitive socius, which is the problem of inscription, of coding, of marking, has never been raised in such an incisive fashion. Man must constitute himself through the repression of the intense germinal influx, the great biocosmic memory that threatens to deluge every attempt at collectivity. But at the same time, how is a new memory to be created for man, a collective memory of the spoken word and of all of alliances that declines the alliance with extended filiations that endows him with faculties of resonance and retention of selection and detachment. And that affects in this way, the coding of the flows of desire as a condition of the socius. The answer is simple. It is debt open, mobile, and finite blocks of debt. 
this extraordinary composite of the speaking voice, the marked body, and the enjoying eye. All the stupidity and the arbitrariness of the laws, all the pain of the initiations, the whole perverse apparatus of repression and education, the red-hot irons and the atrocious procedures have only this meaning to breed man, to mark him in his flesh, to render him capable of alliance, to form him within the debtor-credor relationship, which on both sides turns out to be a matter of memory, a memory straining towards the future. This is really good because when Deleuze and Guattari will talk about the bad debtor, the one who doesn't pay back his debts, it's as though the marks uh, didn't take on his body, as though he needed more pain and punishment to remember his obligations and his responsibilities to repay. They kind of look at Nietzsche and Nietzsche asks, how is it that the pain pain on the body can become equivalent to, to the debt owed. And they, they go, they kind of go into that, which, which we'll get to very soon. And I think that this is why mouse is so importantly looking at the conception of the objects the things exchanged, having spirits and being endowed with spirits, whether it be of the ancestors or the gods and those spirits have forces and they demand to be, put into circulation. Holding on to them too long has this, as you, as you called it rightly, a, a curse effect, potentially bringing bad fortune, if not death. Yeah. I think here's where the firmware notion, I think it's really interesting is that, and we mentioned this earlier, you kind of talked about the how Marx uses the metaphor of the vampire to represent the capitalist, but also I think in the form of this notion that gifts are animated by spirits. You know, on its face, if you're just looking at that, that seems preposterous in a sort of modern sense. Yeah. Right. But if you really, really kind of think about it, especially in the Marxist idea of dead labor that haunts us, right? Everything does have spirits animating in the sense that another human being gave a exchange a portion of their life to produce this or at least a part of this object that we consume. So we do consume the dead still. Yeah. And I mean, in Deleuze and Guattari, when we talk about the three syntheses, you know, the connective synthesis is related to libido. The disjunctive synthesis is connected to Newman, right? Literally spirit and pleasure voluptas is connected to uh, the conjunctive. So in a certain sense, we could think of all three as various types of spirit of spirits or but at least the Newman is kind of keeping with that, this question of, uh, of a kind of force of recording, right? Because I, I think that that's, Mouse wants to, wants to try to insert for the modern reader, for the modern mind, this notion of these forces, these, these forces of potential that could become equivalent for, for spirits. But I think it's, it's much more animistic and naturalistic in the, uh, in the tribe's conception of yeah. what they mean when they, when they say that not every person has a, it's not just every person has a spirit, right? It's, you know, spirits are, are what are being exchanged. Right. And, uh, and they demand to be circulated and not to be hoarded up and accumulated. Which goes um, to symbolic exchange, right? And I think too, uh, maybe that's one big key that is missing from what we've discussed is we haven't focused on the gifts themselves, right? Because there's this distinction between use value and exchange value, right? That is not made or is, I guess, potlatch is divorced from 
typically divorced. Well, not exactly, I guess, because you do feast, right? The notion of use value is not considered directly right there. You know what I mean? It's like the barter system and other methods of exchange for use value are carried out separately from the potlatch. Yeah. And so there's, it's really what's being, what's, what's being exchanged ultimately are signs, the signs of prestige, signs of inferiority, or I guess impotency and and the ability to reciprocate the gift. And, and the jouissance comes from those things that don't really have any use value, right? He talks, when he talks about the specific types of bracelets and necklaces that are, uh, that are exchanged, that are some of the highest form or highest items to be exchanged with the, I guess, attaching the most forceful spirits or whatever, you know, when they are hoarded for the period of time before they're put back into circulation, there is this, he describes these, the bearers, the possessor of these as like rubbing them on their body. And, and it's directly erotic, directly sexual libidinal. And that obviously is, is some interplay with this way of, understanding the the spirits animating them right the the, mm-hmm. the literal energy that's like libidinally invested in them it becomes this fetish item to a certain extent right, right? which is interesting too in the because i think fetishism is something that baudrillard is big on as well i think relative to symbolic exchange or this you know the kind of notion that all of this being exchanged are these signs themselves and not anything yeah. with like an actual referent to value or use value or something like that. Yeah, Baudrillard is 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 this virtual function of the potlatch, right? As we said, as a method of keeping the libidinal band from at, at a certain stability. My my only point point of argument or contention with Baudrillard on on his conceptions of, of fetishism is by trying to like thread the needle of of the Marxian understanding of fetishism and the Freudian. Mm-hmm. He tends to want to think through it in terms of ideology rather than 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 libidinally. Gotcha. Um, yeah. And so it's just the difference in what the Luz and Guattari are 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 trying to carry on, and and obviously Baudrillard is is doing his own thing, right? Yeah. And as you said, it it particularly is about this question of the sign circulating. There is another part to this sort of spiritual element of of the gifts being animated by spirits but also the gods and i think too a vestigial element of this too is present on i think he says here that money still possesses its magical power and even though this has not always been the case at least since what i believe the 1950s u.s currency has had the in god we trust emblazoned on it yeah and and you look at the back of a dollar bill you see out of many one there's the masonic Symbolism. The all-seeing eye, yeah. I mean that right there. You know, if we're going to talk about the magical qualities, right? There, there is, yeah. there, there is a literal symbolic imprinting of that, of that, of that awareness. It's like providence favors our undertakings. Some, some weird. It's anuit coeptus or something like that. I, I got to look it up again. But it's like, yeah, prov- literally, God is behind us, <laughs> right? Maybe like he's he's on our side course that's the conjunctive synthesis of of we are the we're the good guys right Right. like america is you know supposedly fought this tyranny because and and succeeded because we're we're the best 
that kind of thinking is part of that providence favors our undertakings which is on the back of the the one dollar bill literally in latin it's he favors undertakings but you know you can fill in the blanks who he who he is or represents if you look at that historically it's somewhat interesting too because you know a big portion of the or at least you know what's pointed out as a cause of the american revolution is that is this notion of debt and taxation because of and representation yeah because the defense of the colonies during the french and indian war the crown occurred a debt in terms of defending the colony and so once they come back and ask for the repayment of the debt well then the they balk on their you know they break their contract they break their promise in a sense or fight against this obligation to repay the debt that is owed to the crown for protection from the other. You're right. I mean, they, you know, and we, we all had a, as Americans, we all had to go through this U.S. <laughs> history shit, but yeah, yeah, they, they, they had various ways of trying to levy taxes on stamps. The Stamp um, Act, the T Act, et cetera. Yeah. And so that way of trying to, as you said, repay the debt incurred, obviously at some point there was, there's a threshold where, where one party feels like they are not uh, getting getting the better deal. And so in, in that sense, it's much different than Potlatch, right? Yeah. Which, which, as we've been talking about, is it's kind of like the pleasure principle and the reality principle, right? I mean, mm-hmm. like to a certain extent, you know, just very quickly, the pleasure principle would, would be about seemingly about this immediate pleasure, whereas the reality principle is like, we got to do some shit so we can have more pleasure later. Yeah, exactly. And so it does seem like, in that sense, you know, they're, they're kind of two, two sides of the same coin, not necessarily mm-hmm. opposed. And there is this reality principle in this understanding that the, the gifts I am being given are not necessarily meant to be immediately enjoyed. And so the part of the enjoyment is, in fact, in putting those items back into circulation and the uh, or taking them out of circulation through sacrifice. Right. As we said, part of that means of participating in the exchange process itself is the means of magnifying one's fame and honor and prestige, all these immaterial things that we sometimes don't think of on the same plane in political economy. But obviously in liberal economy, it's, it's very clear. Another little corollary discussion along these lines is that this notion of sentimental value that I thought was pretty astute because even in our, again, to in quotes, modern capitalist economy, this preserves, this is preserved sentimental value, right? Sentimental value still exists. It is detached from exchange and it remains in its symbolic form, a family heirloom or something that's passed down from generation. It may not have a ton of exchange value, but it has this, this other value. I don't know if you would, I want to say primitive and sort of instinctually, I want to say primitive, but that's not, that's not right. I don't know what the right adjective would be. Yeah, it's it can be highly individual. It can also be attached to works of art and these other things that can that along with their aesthetic value can accrue um, sentimental value as well. Even if and sometimes, especially if they're not famous works of art, right? I mean, more sentimental value and perhaps you know a a child's drawing than in a Picasso. Ooh, that's it's interesting. Just, I mean, it's just, it's, it's different, right? It's because as you said, that's not necessarily something that one is going to, you're going to put it on your fridge. You're not going to necessarily try to auction it off. 
there's still a value. There's a desire to retain the object rather than exchange it. Or there's the object is imbued with, again, this could be an example of the object imbued with the spirit of yeah. the person that made it or the person that gave you the gift. Right. I mean, like, and, 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 and similar to your discussion of sentimental value, I thought it was interesting in the, in the conclusion, he somewhere says he's talking about some law passed in France in the twenties where works of art being exchanged, being sold and, and resold and gaining in value and, and prestige that there was this law passed so that the original artist can yeah, get a certain some percentage, the, right? Yeah. Get some of the cut of that rise in value uh, that, I thought that was that was kind of interesting just yes. to see how he's wanting to say, aha, like, see the this notion of potlatch, this notion of, you know, the original owner, quote unquote, obviously the manufacturer, the artist himself, herself, you know, uh, deserves part of the accrual of interest and value that we we kind of see naturally happening. I say naturally, you know what I mean, that we right. see happening and organically in maybe is yeah and, and that, that and, we and see already way. happening in in potlatch right that you give such that you know what you will receive in the future is you know is going to be i don't want to say worth more but it's going to be more right it's um reminds me of the we, we yesterday we were talking about the bible a lot we haven't necessarily brought it up much i mean we talked about oh, yeah, Abel. Yeah, yeah. we talked about abraham and isaac the question of sacrifice uh, we talked about um, I was thinking about, gosh, there's, I was thinking about, uh, you can either think about Job, right? Job gets everything taken away from him, but <laughs> at, at the end, God gives him back right. every, everything, maybe twofold or exponentially more, right? It's funny that you as though to make that. Up, as though to make up for it, right? As though to make up for the existential dread. <laughs> it's funny that you mentioned this too, because the movie I watched last night was A Serious Man by the Coen Brothers, which has a lot of analogs to Job Oh, cool! on the kind of excess suffering that the protagonist takes on. I haven't seen that yet. So I was also thinking about the parable of the talent, right? The, the well, what about this too? I mean, even if you're talking the notion of story of the prodigal son that asks for his inheritance right away. Right. And then he goes off and expect and waste it all basically. And then comes back to the father, but the father accepts him and says, kill the fatted calf, etc." Right. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, Jesus wants to analogize it to this notion of, I think about it in terms of the event, in terms of like Badu's theory of the, of the event where Jesus is trying to kind of say like, don't think just because you're quote unquote, the first Christians that, you know, from the start that somehow you are, you are better than others in the future or others who convert or, you know, others who may struggle with, with what he's commanding us to do. I mean, I, I think of St. Augustine saying, Lord, grant me chastity, just not yet. Right? <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's this, it's obviously this, um, because part of the, part of the story too, is the, the older brother who stayed and labored, right? He's, they're not throwing a feast for him. And he's yeah, kind of like, yeah. man, what the fuck? And, and, you know, Jesus is kind of, kind of saying like, don't be, don't be the bad. Don't be the, don't be the jealous brother. Don't be the resent. Yeah. Don't have the res resentment, which goes back to Cain and Abel. Yeah. Right. It's a sort of mirror of Cain and Abel in their, their offerings to, to God. in that I believe Cain's 
sacrifice that he or his offering is particularly of of wheat, I want to say. And I forget what Abel's is, but I believe it. It's a calf. It's a calf. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I mean, in the general story, it's it's the struggle between the transition from the or just this division of labor between the agrarian and the and either the hunter society or there's an interesting book about reading this as an analogy for humankind's development. It's at least prospectively interesting, but you're right. There's this Cain is, and we don't know why God favored he's, one over the well, other. He, he's sort of cursed because his, he didn't give the, his gift wasn't of, of appropriate value. Right. right. Like he didn't return the gift of, I presume, I don't know what life think of this in the master slave dialectic, at least loosely speaking, you know, his gift wasn't adequate. He didn't provide the gift back with, with the interest that was required. And so he, he was he, cursed he, by, and we talked about that, you know, that we talked about that earlier about the curse for not fulfilling one's obligations. Well, I don't but know. you're right too. Like there is a certain, I don't know. It seems like a bit unfair as well as the way that this is sort of structured, but I don't know. I'm not sure. If <laughs> Give God, us some leeway, right? <laughs> I'm not sure if God curses Cain. It's just the mark mentioned. of Cain. Well, he does curse him after well, he kills that's, that's, Abel. Yes. The but, mark but, of Cain. But it's it's it seems that in the two gifts of sacrifice, God favored one over the other, gave more. You see this repeated multiple to times Abel. too. Right? Yeah, gave more prestige, and um, you know, it's it's interesting that we see this also in potlatch because in sacrifice, if there is a logic beyond, or if there's a logic internal to the potlatch, not just what Bataille's interest in, which is useless expenditure, but there is a use because one is sacrificing, where does the prestige come from? Well, it, obviously it comes from others and recognizing what one has given but it's supposedly from from the gods, right? One is sacrificing to the gods, and mm-hmm. you see that logic throughout, right? With you see that sometimes talked about with the Mayan civilization. If it's you know you had a bad harvest, well, you got to sacrifice more slaves or something, right? Yeah, there's a lot of the early the three patriarchs of of Israel, you know, that kind of this repetition of sacrifice in different forms and. Because with Abraham and Isaac, it's this test to waste the son, in a sense, in that battalion fashion of the, of the firstborn, right? Like yeah. that's a big sac. That's a high cost. At least the firstborn. Oh right, right, right. Legitimate. Ah, uh, 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 yeah. Good. Yeah. I'm glad you brought that up because right prior to that, I think interestingly, God instructs Abraham to lie with Hagar, the the slave, the Egyptian slave. Yes or handmaiden, I believe, and have the son to procreate that way upon God's instruction, which I think is sort of interesting in the context of, of women and their relation and that notion of reproduction, of social reproduction, the patriarchy having a certain ownership of, of the womb, that being literal property at different times, different cultures would exchange women as Women acted as currency. If you look at Graeber's 5,000 Years of Debt or his book on debt, you know, that's something that he mentioned. I referenced that in one of the Wicked Leotard episodes as well. But I mean, yeah. that's, kind of, that's kind of a tangential point to this repetition of these weird sacrifice binaries or conflicts because we have this one with Abraham and Isaac. Later, we have, I believe it's Jacob and Esau are Isaac's two sons. 
Isaac yeah. is older, he's going blind or is blind. And so the wife, who I believe is Rachel, has the younger son, Jacob, dress in. He puts on like animal fur so that he feels on his chest so that his, he doesn't have like a bare chest. Dealing the birthright of the older son, Esau. Yeah, it's dirty. Part of the way he pays back is living in fear for so long because Esau right. basically becomes a warlord. And yeah. naturally, <laughs> naturally, Jacob assumes he's going to be uh, going to be hunted down and killed for his deception, right? right. Um, but he does exchange something with Esau, right? He, Esau's hungry, gives him that bowl of stew. I hope that <laughs> bowl of stew was worth your birthright. <laughs> it's not. It's not obviously when you're hungry and you uh, that drive is assumably at, at a high enough intensity. You know, you don't think about the the future prospect of your inheritance, right? Yeah. So it's not necessarily a fair exchange. Obviously, Jacob became one of God's favorites, so things work out for him, right? But it's weird that God plays favorites like that, right? Well, that's that's one way of telling the genealogy. It's one way of it's not just a mythological aspect, right? It is it is about telling this genealogy that supposedly from Abraham. A kind of uh, genealogy of morals, if you well, uh, yeah. I mean, it's it's a genealogy mind. of the of the Messiah, right? Because potentially, which is its own gift or form of sacrifice as well, right? Yeah. Well, yes, it, it's analogized that way, right? The propitiation and or whatever. We'll get to talk about uh about Jesus in chapter three of Antiochus. I'm sure we'll we'll come back to the Christ figure and this question of debt and infinite debt. I don't know if you had much else. No, I, I think that this was just a kind of experiment to to give some of the basics of this celebrated thinker whose work for reasons that I think you and I both understood. He's not the best writer, but there are nuggets there. There are nuggets there that, that animate 20th century philosophy and sociology. And, and I think that it's good to go back to the sources sometimes and to try to think not only what our contemporary authors, I say contemporary, the ones we're interested in, Leotard, Deleuze, Guattari, Baudrillard, et cetera, you know, how they think about him and his yeah. thought, but, but also to, to try to see, you know, some of the stuff that, that, that will continue to animate what we're doing. I mean, we're, we're kind of always doing a retrospective and prospective look. I mean, exactly. We, there, there's, it, a, it, there's a rhizomatic element. There's there, a, it's a little wild guys, but like when somebody you know, was asking for uh, like sort of flow chart for how to, or how to like listen to the episodes, it's sort of like, well, you can, you can kind of start anywhere. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like there's no wrong place to start necessarily. This episode, like the Freud stuff, it's kind of, it's kind of like, this is this is a little a little dive into some areas where, in my opinion, Deleuze and Guattari assume either that you're going to pick it up along the way or you're going to be left behind. They assume a kind of fluency with these thoughts. Maybe Mouse not as much. Yeah, but because they do bring him up to kind of say, ah, we, we prefer Nietzsche. But I think with Baudrillard, I definitely think that. Without this detour through Mouse, we will miss some of the the depth of what he's trying to go into. And I think that that would be a disservice to ourselves. That would be a disservice to our listeners. I do want to read this one little last bit, just because it goes to that final kind of element of the conversation relative to, I guess, the the patriarchs of uh, of Judaism or, or Christianity, etc. 
because it goes to that notion um, of God setting a price, which I think is pretty interesting. Yet already another theme appears that no longer needs this human underpinning, one that may be as ancient as the potlatch itself. It is believed that purchases must be made from the gods who can set the price of things. Perhaps nowhere is this idea more characteristically expressed than among the Toraja of the Celebes Islands. Crete tells us that the owner must purchase from the spirits the right to carry out certain actions on his property, which is really theirs, before cutting his wood, before even tilling his soil or planting the upright post of his house, the gods must be paid. Whereas the idea of purchase even seems very little developed in the civil and commercial usage of the Toraja. On the contrary, this idea of purchase from the spirits and the gods is utterly constant. Well, then it makes sense that we made our detour into biblical stories. And, right. Human yeah. sacrifice as, and that'd be something interesting to explore the tie as well. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, cursed share definitely goes. Which definitely, into- I mean, Baudrillard is also quite interested in Bataille and inspired by Bataille as well, just to. to kind of hard not to be, you know, it's kind of, kind of hard not to be <laughs> kind of hard to ignore his influence. But yeah, I thought this was a really productive conversation, exploration, and, and a, a little bit more kind of fun because I could kind of operate here a little bit more creatively. Yeah, I, I, I like this. I like that we also gives listeners time to breathe and, and catch up on the series that we're doing and uh, it's ambitious and yeah. uh, what we're trying to do, I think is, is ambitious. So it will be necessary to like take these pauses. And luckily, I mean, a lot of the stuff we did in the Freud was on purpose to, to give us a good footing before right. we start. It doesn't really make sense to try to refute some of Freud's, theses without trying to engage with them in, in good faith ourselves yeah, first. Absolutely. Uh, so yeah, I, I really enjoyed the, the mouse uh, stuff. I, I learned, I learned a lot. This was a big, this was a, a, a another kind of hole in, in some of my, uh, my reading. I mean, and yeah. if you, you look at the index to Leotard's liberal economy, or I'm sure Baudrillard's symbolic exchange of death, but especially anti-Oedipus, if you just look at the index of names of authors, and thinkers that they cite, it's it's you're not gonna be able to cover them all, but it's good to know where some convergences in these thinkers happen. And I do think Mouse is one of these little singularities that we obviously needed to to delve into. It definitely gives a lot more context to symbolic exchange, I think, relative to potlatch for both the listeners and ourselves in terms of logistics. What do you want to do next week? Do you want to dive into the clusters, or do you want to dive back into symbolic exchange and death or even, yeah, because I guess we just, we just did anti-Oedipus as far as our previous release. I'd say we, we go into Baudrillard. Okay. So the chap, chapter two on simulacra, the procession of the simulacra and simulation will be quite interesting. I plan on watching F is for fake, the quasi fictional documentary that uh, Orson Welles did. And I want to say that Deleuze even references in one of the cinema books as, cause oh, I think that will go to, that will go to very much these notions of, of simulation and especially goes back to here. What you, I forgot to mention this, you were discussing artworks as well, because that's kind of the prime, one of the primary focuses of the film is this notion of the origin, the fake, et cetera, which I think will have a lot more purchase with 
with the next chapter of symbolic exchange and death. Yeah. And I, I think that, I think that th- this, this chapter will be interesting for a lot of people who may have only gotten into Baudrillard based on his theories of simulacra based on his arguably his most famous book. Right. So it'd be nice to see what he's already doing with it, especially in the context of these thinkers that we talked about. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think keep going with the, uh, with the Baudrillard. It's, how many pages is it? It's probably not that long. Probably like 50 pages or so. I'm no, it's like, no, it's like 30, 36, 35. Oh, nice. nice. And I have familiarity. I mean, obviously I'm pretty up to speed on this concept, so I should be able to handle that pretty well. Nice. This will be the uh, Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry and Taylor Atkins signing off. Of negativity and singularity. Including the ultimate form of singularity, which is this is the typical violence of information. It's violent because what happens there is a murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. What I meant is the following. With nothing left but recycled, whitewashed, lobotomized people, as in a block work orange.